Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and I am really glad to see so many of you here on this gloomy but good for museum business morning. Um, I want to urge all of you, if you haven't already seen our exhibition, Chinese American Exclusion Inclusion, to make sure you do so before mid-April. It will be closing April 19th, so um, just, uh, just another month or so to, to see that wonderful exhibition that tells a long and very complex history of Chinese in America. Um, also opening uh, this Friday, um, May, March 20th, is uh, a wonderful new exhibition on Lincoln and the Jews that um, tells a story that uh, oh, virtually no one knows with many documents, objects, um, artifacts uh, from, um, from, from the period of the Civil War that have never been seen in public before. So I urge you to come back during regular museum hours for those shows. Today's program, The Untold Story of Joseph Stalin and Reflections on Russia Today, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his great support, which has enabled us to bring so many fine historians and writers to this auditorium. I'd also like to thank our partners in presenting this morning's program, the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Uh, which developed this program in collaboration with us. I'd like to thank and recognize Glenn Louie, uh, trustee, great trustee and long-standing trustee in the audience today, and um, to thank Glenn for all the work he's done now over a significant number of years for this great institution. I'd also like to thank the many Chairman's Council members uh, in the audience today and thank them for their great support. This morning's program will last an hour and a half, and it will include a question and answer session. Um, as uh, we customarily do, we'll ask you to line up um, behind standing microphones in the aisles to my left and to my right. We ask you to do this so that everyone in the auditorium and those who listen to our recorded podcasts can hear you. Uh, following the program, please do join us for a book signing with our speaker, whose book will be available for purchase in our museum store. I'd like to also ask you to please make sure that anything that makes noise like a cell phone is silenced. And now uh, I would like to welcome Alan Luxenberg, the president of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, who will be introducing today's speaker. Based in Philadelphia, FPRI has been ranked as the number one think tank in the country with a budget under $5 million. And now please join me in welcoming Alan Luxenberg. I'd like to also welcome you on behalf of the Foreign Policy Research Institute and thank uh, the New York Historical Society for partnering with us on what will be the first of a three-part series of lectures uh, jointly sponsored by the two institutions. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with the Foreign Policy Research Institute, it was founded in Philadelphia in 1955 by Robert strauss Pay on the premise, as he put it, that a nation should think before it acts. It was good advice then, and it's still good advice today, even if not always welcome. It has always been our mission to bring the insights of scholarship to bear on the foreign policy challenges uh, facing the United States, and our founder was one of the earlier 
uh, popularizers of what's called geopolitics, which is simply the examination of contemporary international affairs through the lens of history, geography, and culture. Or as one of my colleagues puts it, it's the understanding of the realities and mentalities of the localities. <laughs> Given the turmoil in the world today, that mission and that method are needed today more than ever. Uh, so please pick up one of our brochures on your way out the door today. Now it's my pleasure to introduce to you our speaker today, uh, Stephen Kotkin, the Berkland Professor of History and International Affairs at Princeton University. He is also a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. He has a way too long record of academic achievement for me to recite, no less remember, but uh, let me be abbreviated by saying that he's the author of several important books, among them uh, Armageddon Averted, about the collapse of the Soviet Union, Uncivil Society, about the implosion of communism in Eastern Europe, uh, Magnetic Mountain, about Stalinism as a civilization. Today he is to talk about his new book that has received rave reviews in the New York Times, in the Washington Post, and just about everywhere else. It is uh, a rather hefty volume, but what's really amazing, it is but the first of three volumes on Joseph Stalin. So please welcome Professor Stephen Kotkin. Um, this podium doesn't have, as I was saying before, the little Madeleine Albright edition, which you stand on so that people can see you. So I'm going to move a little bit away from the podium, if that's okay, but I don't want anybody to be scared. You know, in the, in the undergraduate uh, lecture hall, if you walk around the room, they have to very quickly switch the page they're on, on the laptop. Otherwise, you can catch the discounted price of the sweatpants on J. Crew <laughs> that morning. I've asked them, in some cases, to order a second pair. Because <laughs> mine are ripping. But this, obviously, is a different kind of audience. Thankfully, the weather cooperated. You certainly don't want it to be a nice day, easy to get here, and therefore artificially inflate the audience. You're already here because I'm an easy grader. <laughs> I understand these lectures with the tough graders come. This room is empty. You know, so there's a slideshow, as you can see, which is going on. I'll wait to the end to uh, talk about the individual slides. But um, uh, and at the end, of course, we'll have questions. As was mentioned by the president, Louise, the questions are going to be at the microphones in each one of the aisles rather than directly from the audience, um, if, if, if possible. Thanks for that. And also, I think, unlike potato chips, it's going to be one question per person <laughs> rather than a counter speech or a whole bunch of questions because everyone needs a chance should there be any questions. All right, so how do you uh, talk about a book that's 747 pages of text, 
not including the notes, but as my best friend says, it reads like it's no more than 620. <laughs> the pages just fly by. Although Penguin is having trouble with the trial lawyers because of the people who've dropped the book on their foot. <laughs> you know what this town is like. Yes, you know, it's very different to speak to uh, an audience like this. I got to say, I'm so used to the undergraduate thing. You know, we, we had a, um, a tragedy the other day at Princeton. There was a fire in the football dormitory. No uh, uh, human casualties, but all 10 books <laughs> were lost. And the biggest part of the tragedy, Alan, is that five of them hadn't even been colored in yet. <laughs> <laughs> Nasty, huh? Nasty. Well, you know, the subject here is not that humorous a subject. So this is the one chance I get. Once I launch into the actual book, it's kind of about terror and enslavement. And you see Trotsky there with his all-black leather outfit on. Okay, so... Um, how could we possibly need yet another book about Joseph Stalin? I mean, just in my own house, in my private library, a giant bookshelf, which is double-booked back and front, eight shelves, is just biographies of Stalin, not including memoirs and reminiscences. So how could it be that we need yet another one? Or to put it another way, what is it that might be different about this one compared to all the other ones? So maybe we'll start with that question and use that as a point of entry in. Uh, that's Lenin, late in life. You can see the dementia in his face. So what I tried to do with Stalin, or at least with this book, this version of it, is to widen the lens a little bit. So instead of beginning with his early childhood or beginning with him as the sole protagonist, the center of the story, I widened the lens out really far. So the book actually opens up with Bismarck's unification of Germany, which happened in the 1870s. That same decade, there was the Meiji Restoration in Japan, which was not the creation of a new country like Bismarck's unification of Germany, but nonetheless was the consolidation of the Japanese nation. And both Germany and Japan enjoyed tremendous industrial spurts, and then they had a forward-looking, or some people would say aggressive, foreign policy. So from the, from the 1870s, the world shifted dramatically, and that happens to be the decade that Stalin was born in. Moreover, the Bismarck unification of Germany and the Meiji restoration of Japan happened on either side of the Russian Empire. So they were sort of the flank, new flanking powers of the Russian Empire, so Russia's world changed dramatically. And that's the world into which Stalin is born. Now, he's born on the periphery of the Russian Empire. His birth is of no significance in, in December 1878. His father is a cobbler. His mother is a seamstress and washerwoman. Very humble origins. And, of course, the idea that he could get anywhere near power is unimaginable in the decade that he's born in. So instead of starting with him, we kind of try to start with the world, as I said, into which he's born, sketch that in, because, of course, he's going to then have a dramatic impact on that world as we move later in time. And so it's very important to understand this, as in my view, this wider 
perspective, this wider lens, to bring in global historical process, Russian imperial history, and to bring in all the things that were happening during Stalin's youth. Let's remember, he's 39 years old almost. He's in his 39th year when the revolution happens in 1917. And so often, people by 39 years old have accomplished something. Not everyone, obviously, <laughs> has accomplished something by 39, but generally speaking, 39 is kind of late in life to be thinking about now uh, becoming famous for something. And so often people will skip those first 39 years or they'll go very quickly through them, or in fact, they'll invent a story which is interesting and sexy to fill in for the fact that those 39 years were spent uh, in, often in obscurity. So instead of doing that, I filled it in with the larger history. So there's a story of how the Russian state operated. There's a story about whether the autocracy, the Russian czars, were on a stable path of evolution or whether they were leading to a crash. There's a story about where World War I came from and how World War I brought down the old order in order to get Stalin anywhere near power. The old world had to be destroyed if somebody like him was going to get near the seat of power in the world's biggest country. Of course, he did nothing in World War I. He was in exile in eastern Siberia, northeastern Siberia, from 1914 to 17. And he fought World War I on the mosquito and boredom front of the war. And yet, there's a whole chapter on World War I because it's crucial, in my view, to understanding how he's going to get there, as I said, into power despite the fact that he had no uh, obvious achievements or major uh, significant participation in major events in World War I. Okay, so that's the first point, the widening of the lens, the getting the global historical processes, Russian imperial history, the problem of the rise of Germany, the rise of Japan. Russia fights a war with Japan, the Russo-Japanese War, and loses 1904-05. Russia obviously fights a war with Germany, World War I, also loses that war, the so-called Eastern Front. The Germans are going to win that war. The Germans lose the war on the Western Front, but they win the war on the Eastern Front. So managing Russian power in the world, managing Russia in the new circumstances of a powerful Germany and Japan, this is Stalin's world. And in fact, in many ways, uh, his ability or inability to come to grips with these questions is going to determine the success or failure of his rule. Okay, so that's point one. That's the guy who made Stalin a Marxist, Lato Ketsavelli. So, um, as I said, at the end, I'll go through all the slides, and they're from, most of them are from the glass plate negatives in the uh, secret archives that are now open to researchers. So the second thing that I tried to do, uh, in addition to widening the lens, was to put politics at the center. You know, sometimes you get a biography. Let's take um, your favorite painter, whoever it might be, uh, Picasso, Matisse, and you read a biography, and the biographer says, oh, yeah, had a tough relationship with the mother. Oh, yeah, you know, tough relationship with the father. You know, oh, yeah, had a mistress or failed to have a mistress or was humiliated by a teacher in school. And you go through all of these psychological moments, and you think, but wait a minute. You know, the teachers in school humiliated me. <laughs> I had a difficult relationship with my father. And, you know, I didn't paint like Picasso. 
I have that finger painting still, my mother saved. I didn't write novels like James Joyce and, or, you know. And so you think that can't be it. And you don't want to have a sort of psychological reduction of some transcendent works of art. Now, those things are obviously important to life story, but the art transcends the life and is spectacular through time, through the ages, and bigger than the person's life. And so Stalin, his dictatorship is a transcendent work of art. There has never been a larger accumulation of power, a greater exercise of power than Stalin's dictatorship. Let's remember, Hitler was 12 years, 12 nasty years in Germany. Stalin was three decades. And moreover, Hitler, as you know, lost the war, and Stalin was in power when they won the war. Uh, Mao also maybe could put in this category of a fantastic dictatorship, but Mao built much less than Stalin. Stalin built a military-industrial complex, a nuclear-armed superpower. Mao uh, didn't build anything like that. And so if you're talking about dictatorship, this is the gold standard of dictatorship, not in a moral or positive sense, not in a value sense. I don't identify with the policies of the regime. The regime was brutal and nasty, and everything we know about the regime uh, speaks to that. But at the same time, from the point of view of power and institutions, accumulating this much power and exercising this much power is just awesome. And Stalin had that kind of power, and so it, in a way, he created a dictatorship that from power point of view is a transcendent work of art. So we don't want to explain it by the fact that his father might have beat him or not. My father beat me on occasion, perhaps deservedly so, and I have not murdered 10 million people. <laughs> right? So we want to put the politics back front and center. Even if the life story is important, even if the, what is verifiably true about his life needs to be in there too, it turns out that the politics, the, the building and the running of the dictatorship, the creation and the exercise of this kind of power is more formative on the person than the person is on the policies, if you see what I mean. It's the politics that produces Stalin rather than Stalin as a fully formed personality who produces the politics. So that's the second point, which I think, I hope at least, distinguishes the book. And then the third point, which uh, I think is also important in potentially distinguishing the book, is that the, the book is based on a, a, a deep research, very thoroughgoing research in the original primary documents. When I first got started on this project, I wasn't sure it could be done. I had written a total history of a single town, Magnitogorsk, which the book, as Alan Luxemburg referred to, Magnetic Mountain, which was a street-level inside view on the Stalin phenomenon, you know, kind of from the ground up from the inside, but only a single town, 170,000 people, and it's the history, right, obviously, but the politics, the society, the economy, the culture, one place, total history. And then I thought, could you do this for the regime? Could you do a total history of the Stalin phenomenon, but from inside the regime, inside Stalin's personal dictatorship? And the problem was the access to the original materials that would enable you to do this. And many materials were being released with the fall of the Soviet Union, but this was primarily the Communist Party archive. Uh, 
And the Communist Party archive is very important, but also the military archive and the secret police archive were equally, if not more important. And we weren't getting declassification. We weren't getting opening of the secret police and the military archive to the same degree. And so even though the, the fantastic amount of new material we got from the Communist Party archive was there from the late 80s, early 90s, still too much was missing to contemplate that this could really be done with the same level of verifiable, authentic detail, original primary source materials, a total history of the regime from the inside. A couple of things happened, though, late 90s, early 2000s, in this third category of new sources, new materials, opening up of the formerly secret archives. And that was this guy, Dmitry Volkogonov. He was a general in the Soviet Army, and his last position was head, director of the military archive. And Volkogonov collected a lot of materials. He had a research team from all the different archives, former KGB, as well as the military archive he headed, as well as the Communist Party archive. In fact, there was an archive we didn't even know about, which used to be called the Politburo Archive, and is now called the Presidential Archive, where all the absolute most secret materials were located. And Volkogonov, in a privileged position, had his research team assemble materials from all of these difficult-to-access places, which are still closed to researchers like me. And after he wrote a biography of Trotsky, a biography of Lenin, a biography of Stalin, he then deposited his, his photocopies of the original documents in the United States. And there are 55 microfilms of these secret materials, police and military primarily, but also these formerly unknown presidential archive. He deposited them, and I read them, the 55 microfilms at Stanford University, at the Hoover Institution, in the late 90s and early 2000s. And this was the gold mine. This was it. Now you could finally begin to imagine that you could tell the biography of the regime and Stalin's personal power from the inside. In uh, sort of 2003, I think it was, uh, I signed a contract for the Stalin um, project, and then I wrote volumes one and two uh, simultaneously in the 11 years since then. Volume one, the one that's been published, is... 1870s to 1928, and volume two is going to go from 1929 to Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union in June, June 22nd, 1941. So I started with Bismarck's unification and Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union, and then I worked back to the middle, and then I cleaved at the collectivization decision in 1928, and that's volume one, and volume two is in manuscript and, and getting ready. Okay, so, but it was Volkogonov who taught me that this could be done, and I am, as it were, a beneficiary of the work that he did and of the fact that he deposited those materials over here. Uh, in addition, after Volkogonov, the archives themselves began to publish document collections, meaning that they declassified their materials, this is the police and military archives, and issued these big, fat Russian-language tomes. And so if you think of something like Soviet-German relations, 1920 to 1930, three volumes, 700 pages each volume, and these now are sitting, you know, they're right here down the New York Public Library, they're up at Columbia University Library, they're out there in Princeton University Library, et cetera. And this avalanche of document, uh, collected documents in 
published form, right, has now become very, very widespread, and it's really hard to assimilate them all. So the problem was no longer access, but the sheer amount of materials that we had. So as a result of which, I, would, I thought I was able to embark on this project, and as those of you who've seen the book or will see it, there are probably about 4,000 endnotes in Volume 1 to original primary source documents that come from the formerly secret archives of the Soviet Union. I'm obviously not the only one who's working through these things. Many other people have been working on them, and you'll see also in the endnote citations to the many, many, many other books that are underway using these same materials. And so I felt it was possible to synthesize all of this work and to bring it into the public realm in a form that I hope was readable and accessible, even as many other people are working on it. So the combination of widening the lens, putting politics at the center of what is ultimately a political story and a geopolitical story, and then basing it on original primary source documentation as much as possible, especially police and military, not only Communist Party archives. So we get the impression that you know things are bad in Russia and things are closing down and access is closing off. But as I was doing the copy editing for volume one, more materials from the presidential archive were being declassified. And I was able to include, for example, a seven-page handwritten memorandum from Stalin, you know, written in his recognizable hand in red pencil. He used colored pencils, mostly red and blue. And I recognized his handwriting, and it's, uh, he was white hot with fury, wrote this memorandum, which he shared with only a handful of people, about a foreign policy crisis in 1927. And I hadn't known about the existence of this document. It was in the presidential archive. It came out, as I said, during the copy editing stage. And Penguin was kind enough, uh, gritting their teeth, to allow me to insert this new material in a book that had already been done, as it were. So, and I was just there in December, and once again, uh, more material being declassified. And the Spanish Civil War, 1936 to 39, also in the Presidential Archive, those materials were recently declassified. And my volume two, which as I said, deals with 1929 to 41, has a chapter and a half on the Spanish Civil War, which you know from George Orwell and various other sources was a really important moment in world history. And Stalin's uh, inside view, the secret documents about what he was up to in the Spanish Civil War were now were recently declassified. So it's very exciting. That doesn't mean everything is easy and hunky-dory, and there's a lot of things that I, weren't, I, I have still not been able to read that I would like to read. There are some things I suspect might exist, but I can't verify whether they exist or not. Some of the sources in the public realm are fabrications, and so you have to be careful. Every two years, uh, Lavrenti Beria's diaries are published, <laughs> and they're bestsellers. Unfortunately, he never wrote any diaries, and they read like the novel that they are. And so you have to be careful. Obviously, some of the fakes, some of the fabrications are very good. Anyway, and also, you know, a lot of what I'm going to say coming up now is going to be eerily reminiscent of what's going on in the world today with regard to Russia. But there are a lot of echoes um, from the, in the book with contemporary time. For example, Stalin also um, uh, did not disclose and destroyed a great deal of his email. 
He has a perfectly innocent explanation. It was convenience. <laughs> it had nothing to do with the fact that he was murdering all of those people. I'm a nonpartisan person. I'm a registered, registered independent. And I just observe and pay the taxes. It's so funny. So many of the rats don't want to live in a subway anymore. They've got to move to Albany. <laughs> What's wrong with the subway? <laughs> Why do they got to go to Albany? Right? Yeah, paying taxes in New York. All right, let's get back. No more diversions, no more tricks. No more cheap pandering to the audience. <laughs> Especially an educated audience like this. Plus, we got the balcony. It's been a while since I had a full balcony. Well, when you lecture at 11 o'clock in the morning, what do you expect, right? This year, 9, 9.30, Princeton University, you lecture at 11. And you're asking for trouble. All right. So that's, I think, partial explanation, at least, for what I, why, what I think might justify the existence of this book. Now, what's in the book? Let's go through some. Obviously, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but let's go through some of what I think are the key episodes. I think I'm good with time so far, and then we'll do some questions. And I'll uh, uh, use some of the time I have to open up the comparisons with the contemporary period, and then certainly you're welcome in the question and answer to do that. And then I said, I'll mention the slide. That's where Stalin was in World War I in Siberia, end of the, end of the world, in the Arctic Circle. Okay, so one question people ask me all the time is, when did Stalin become a dictator? In other words, when did he have absolute power? And normally people point to, oh, maybe it could have been when he uh, killed all those elites in 1937 and 38. Maybe it was when he triumphed over Nikolai Bukharin and the so-called right deviation, which was Stalin's blasphemy or slander of them in 1929. And when was the time he was a dictator? And so one of the things I tried to do in the book was to go through and examine that very carefully. And it turns out that in revolution is, as you know, October 1917. There's really no state at this point. The, the chapter on 1918 is called Dada and Lenin, and it's meant literally. Lenin lived on the same street in Zurich as the Dada Cafe, where Dada was invented. And he invented his own political version of this Dada. And 1918, there was no Soviet state at all. They were in control of nothing. But by the victory in the Civil War in 1918 to 21, there is now a Soviet state, a Bolshevik dictatorship. And within that dictatorship, Stalin's going to build his own personal one. And so when does that happen? In April 1922, Lenin, and we have the documents in his hand, and so we're very clear that he did this. Lenin created a new post especially for Stalin. It was called General Secretary of the Communist Party. General Secretary of the Party. Stalin was already performing the job de facto. He was doing, he was Lenin's right-hand person. Lenin was the head of the government, the undisputed leader of the Bolshevik Party, clearly the main figure in the revolution. He was number one. Nobody would mistake anybody else for number one. But Stalin was Lenin's principal deputy at this point, performing the functions of banging heads, doing the difficult assignments, keeping the trains running on time, general secretary of the Communist Party. 
April 1922. Now, Lenin is not appointing Stalin to be his replacement or anything like that. Lenin is recognizable number one. He's appointing him to be a top deputy, right? Which, as I say, Stalin is already doing de facto, but Lenin formalizes the position by calling it General Secretary of the Communist Party. New post that hadn't existed before. April 1922. Well, in May 1922, what happens? That is to say, the next month, Lenin has a stroke. And now he's incapacitated. So here you go. You've handed the keys to the kingdom, as it were, to your number two, and then you've had a stroke the next month. Lenin never comes back full speed to his job. After May 1922, he comes back partially a couple times, but he's going to have a series of three more very large strokes, and he's going to pass away in January 1924. So already in spring 1922, Stalin is in power. And so one of the confusing things about the so-called succession struggle, the struggle to succeed Lenin, is how Stalin won. And the answer was, he was there. He was in power. And for the others to win, they had to dislodge him. They had to remove Stalin. Because, as I say, Lenin had appointed him general secretary of the party. Now, what did it mean, general secretary of the party? Well, the, the Communist Party controlled the liaison with the military. So Stalin controlled the military from inside the party. It controlled the liaison with the secret police. It controlled the liaison with the embassies abroad. It was responsible for the ciphers or the secret codes. It was the only part of the regime allowed to send out information commands and directives to all the provinces and all the embassies abroad, and it gathered the information from all those sources. And it shared or didn't share that information as it saw fit. So if they would have meetings, and they would have a fight, and argue about policy, and make a decision, and have a vote, and whatever happened, then Stalin might lose at the meeting. But then he would go back to his office, and he was the one that sent out the directive about what people should or shouldn't do. In fact, his office was the one that recorded the transcript for the meeting about what was said at the meeting. And his was the office that when the response from the localities was sent back, shared or didn't share that information with the others. So because it's a dictatorship, Lenin has created a dictatorship, right? The dictatorship is centered on the Communist Party, and Stalin is in charge of that, and Lenin is incapacitated. So Stalin is doing all sorts of things with this power. Now, he could have been a different kind of person. He could have said, geez, that's not fair. <laughs> Lenin has a stroke, and by virtue of that random act, I'm all of a sudden in charge? That's not right. I control the secret police. How could that be? What about the other guys? How about if I let you control the secret police and I sort of back away? Trotsky is the war commissar, and I'm controlling the military from the inside using it. That's not right. That would be unfair to Trotsky. Here, you know, I'll stop interfering in military matters through the party mechanism. Oh, geez, foreign policy? I'm controlling foreign policy? How could that be? That's not right. Why don't I allow others to control? So, you know, he was not that kind of person. <laughs> he was the kind of person that said, oh, really? You mean... It's all mine now? And so he enacted the role of being general secretary, and by that enactment, he began building a personal dictatorship. It was no guarantee of success, because actually it's not easy to build a personal dictatorship. 
I've tried many times at Princeton <laughs> University, and I've made no headway. Just as with the cult of the personality, you think it's really easy, and it doesn't work. <laughs> so he built it. He was very talented in a dictatorial type of way. Right? I don't think uh, we would want him, for example, to run a charity. <laughs> I don't think maybe we'd want him to be CEO of a private corporation. Actually, that I don't know. <laughs> that one's more ambiguous. But anyway, but if, if the job is, you know, run a dictatorship, this is your guy. So I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example of uh, just in this point. In the Civil War, Trotsky, the war commissar, was on the front in his famous train, this armored train, Trotsky's train. And the number two guy in the secret police, who was an ethnic Pole named Menjinsky, a fantastic character, he painted his fingernails red, uh, wore a kaftan uh, 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 like a Persian, studied the Persian language among the 14 languages he studied, but he had to lie down when he was um, receiving people in the secret police because he had been hit by a car in Paris before the revolution, so he was a little bit of an invalid lying down there with the caftan and the red painted fingernails, and he was the number two guy in the secret police and would eventually, from 1926 to 34, would be number one. He comes to Trotsky in 1919 and says, you know, on the train here, back in Moscow, Stalin is pouring poison in Lenin's ear about you. Now, if somebody who's high up in the secret police came to me voluntarily, volunteering information that was hurting, you know, that somebody was hurting me, I would say, you know, this is a pretty good opportunity. I would say to him, tell me more. I would say, you know, who else can you recruit to help us monitor the situation so that this guy, Stalin, doesn't have the kind of access to Lenin, and Lenin is hearing other things? What does Trotsky do? Trotsky says, you're gossiping. This is unbolshevik. He stands on principle. He doesn't perceive the opportunity of the secret policeman coming to him voluntarily. Instead, he is offended at this type of behavior. So Stalin gets to be general secretary of the party in 1922. The first thing he does is Dzerzhinsky's the number one in the secret police, Menjinsky's number two. Stalin begins a correspondence with the number three. The number one and number two are loyal to Stalin because he's general secretary of the party and he's in communication with them. And Stalin opens a communication with the number three because the number three is going to watch the number one and the number two. And the number three is this guy, Yagoda, who is a kind of a black marketeer, wheeler-dealer. He's in charge of the furniture and the other things there. And he doesn't have any tradecraft. He's not a counterintelligence person. So the guy who establishes counterintelligence really dislikes the number three guy. The guy who starts counterintelligence, who's got tradecraft, spycraft, is a real secret policeman, not a black marketeer, wheeler, and dealer. His name is Frauci. He's a Swiss cheesemaker. His father has immigrated from Switzerland uh, to Russia. He takes the name Artuzov. He founds counterintelligence. He hates Yagoda, the number three. And so Stalin recruits Artuzov to watch Yagoda. So he's got Yagoda watching one and two. And then he goes to Artuzov and says, you know, this guy, Yagoda, can't be trusted. And Artuzov says, yeah, that's what I've been telling you. And Stalin says, you watch him for me, and, but you keep it quiet. You just report to me about this. So he's got one enemy watching the other guys, and he's got this enemy watching this enemy, and the information is flowing to him. He's seizing 
the opportunities that come his way to build this personal dictatorship. It's a skill. Not everybody has the skill. He's got the skill. He's not a genius. He gets many things wrong. He has no understanding of fascism. He thinks it's about finance capital and, and the big bourgeoisie and other things like that. So he's no genius, but he's got uh, great instincts, political instincts, when it comes to intrigue and conspiracy and running a dictatorship. So if you know your Prussian military history, strategy is about not planning everything out before it happens, but perceiving opportunities that come your way and seizing them and turning them to your advantage. Right? They always asked, you know this one, Mike Tyson. Mike had a great fight. He looked really good out there. He won the fight. And they said, Mike, you know, what was, did you have a plan going into the fight? And Mike says, yeah, I had a plan. And then I got punched in the mouth. <laughs> Well, that's what strategy is. You have a plan, and then you actually go to do battle. And now you're on the battlefield, and things don't turn out the way you had pre-planned and wargamed them, and new situations are arising that you didn't foresee, and your job is to seize those situations and turn them to your advantage. That's the definition of strategy, and Stalin was a great strategist in a dictatorial sense. Right? But he's already in power, so the field is tilted his way. He's general secretary of the party. So the answer to when Stalin became a dictator is spring 1922, the potential for a personal dictatorship was delivered to him on a silver platter, and he seized the moment. Okay, now let's go to a second point, uh, which I think I show in the book. You know, these points are arguable, and some people would disagree that Stalin was already such a powerful figure. But so one of the things I do in the book is lay out what I think is a lot of evidence from the primary source documents, including others in the inner circle complaining, Stalin's making all these decisions behind our back, which is pretty interesting and important evidence because those people are the ones working most closely with him right next to him. They'll be at a meeting, and they'll be yelling and screaming, and who's in charge, and who's going to win the fight at the meeting, and who's the smartest? And Stalin will be sitting off to the side. He's got the pipe. He gets up and he says, you know what? Uh, four months ago, I put down a revolt in the Caucasus. And the room goes hushed. They had no idea there was a revolt in the Caucasus. He's just showing them that he knows stuff that they don't know. And that he acted without consulting with them. Putting down the revolt in the Caucasus, because he's the only one, as I said, with the secret police control, and by the way, wink, wink, I'm letting you know, as if, you know, it slipped his mind to tell them before, right? So this is the kind of evidence that I hope I present in the book to show, to back up the kind of uh, vision or the storyline I'm giving here. All right, so second question, when did Stalin become a sociopath? <laughs> also a really important question. I think, you know, there's no way to describe that kind of behavior ultimately. If that many millions of people are dying, and often innocent people are being tortured to confess to crimes they didn't commit, there's evidence of sociopathic behavior. We have a whole lot of stuff on this side of Stalin, obviously. You know, one of the things the secret archives, when they opened up, it wasn't like we rushed in and discovered that Stalin was Mother Teresa. You know, some of the things we knew before, we st I mean, we knew them before, right? He was sociopath. And so, when did this begin to show? And we have the evidence of people who somehow survived 
emigrated, and then wrote reminiscences in their older age in emigration. And so they would say, you know, when we were in seventh grade together, he came to me and he said, ah, I'm going to murder you all. Maybe he said that when they were in seventh grade together. This person is now 70 and remembering what happened, you know, 60 years ago or 55 years ago. Maybe it's a true story and maybe it's not. Or, you know, the, aha, you, I, I was there when Stalin put the cat in the microwave. <laughs> and I knew right then that he was going to collectivize agriculture and enslave the peasantry. <laughs> right? So there's a tremendous amount of this kind of material, some of which could be true. That is to say, the reminiscences could be accurate. But I decided not to use any of that material. Instead, I followed only in real time what they said about Stalin, you know, 1910, 1917, 1923, what they were saying as they were closely observing him and recording at the time. And if it wasn't recorded at the time, like I say, it still could be true, but I'm less interested in using it. So there's this episode called The Cave Meeting. And I'm going to go into a little bit of detail now about this episode from the summer of 1923 because I think it bears directly on this issue of the sociopathic behavior. So in 1923, Stalin is 45 years old. What happens is, as I say, Lenin gets sick and has the stroke in May 1922 and then has additional strokes thereafter until he dies in January 1924. And allegedly, in December 1922 and January 1923, during the middle of this prolonged sickness, while he's having these incapacitating strokes, Lenin dictates two documents which become known as the Lenin Testament, the Last Will and Testament, also known as Lenin's Letter to the Party Congress. It was supposed to be what they were supposed to do when Lenin died. And the first one, allegedly dictated in December 1922, characterized six people, uh, Stalin, Trotsky, uh, Kamenev, Zinoviev, uh, Rosencrantz, and Guildenstern. <laughs> And, you know, were they worthy to be his successor or not? And then there's, a, there's an addendum from January 1923 which calls for Stalin's removal as general secretary. And this is allegedly coming from Lenin's own mouth. So once again, this is supposed to be only after Lenin dies to be handed in. It's supposed to be his last will and testament. And so you go to the archive and you ask for the document. Because when somebody gives dictation, it's shorthand, right? You, you don't write down every word and you don't type it out. You take shorthand where you use abbreviations or parts of words or whatever it might be. And then there's a typescript of the shorthand and then that becomes the final document, but you preserve the shorthand, handwritten document, and there's several versions of Lenin's dictation in handwritten shorthand, but not for this one. Moreover, the typescript changes over time. It's not the same document in all its incarnations. It's corrected or things are added to it. Anyway, and it's not produced after Lenin's dead. It's produced by Lenin's wife, Krupskaya, Nadezhda Krupskaya, in May 1923. So it's allegedly dictated December and January, December 22, January 23, in May 1923, right after a party congress in which Stalin has crushed Trotsky, and it looks like Stalin is in a position to be Lenin's sole heir. 
And all of a sudden, the document comes forward talking about how Stalin has all these personality problems and is not really such a good person and maybe not such a good heir. May 1923. It has no effect on the political situation. All of a sudden, after the failure of the first version, a second comes out in June 1923. And this is the one calling for Stalin's removal as general secretary. Now, if they were both dictated and existed already, December 22, January 23, why didn't Krupskaya, the wife, hand them both in together in May 1923? Why did she hand the first one in May and the second harsher one only in June 1923? Circumstances are a little bit interesting, intriguing there. Anyway, so Grigory Zinoviev, who has been with Lenin in the emigration in Zurich and who is uh, very close to Krupskaya, the wives are also close. Uh, Krupskaya hands it to Zinoviev, this dictation from Lenin, a typescript, calling for Stalin's removal. And Zinoviev has a meeting, he's on holiday, he goes down on holiday in the south, in a place called Kislovotsk, which is a mineral bath, Kislovodsk, acidic waters in Russian, Kislovotsk, mineral bath, spa town. And they go up on a mountain in a cave, and they have a cons- him. Zinoviev and three other people, four people, they have a meeting about what to do. And Zinoviev is very, very ambitious. He's hounding Stalin to be the one to give the speech at the party congress in Lenin's place. So he clearly wants to be seen, recognized as Lenin's successor. And here you have this letter from Lenin calling for Stalin's removal. Now, if I got that letter and I was ambitious, I know exactly what I would do. I, would run th- I wouldn't be up in a cave having a meeting with three people. I'd be up in Moscow demanding a meeting of the inner circle and saying, look, we've got to uphold Lenin's will here. Stalin's removed as general secretary, and I'm appointed. Right? Now, what if Stalin was a sociopath? What if, in addition to Zinoviev's ambition, Stalin was a threat to the revolution and maybe to Zinoviev personally? Forget about whether Zinovia is ambitious or not. Maybe he's not ambitious. If he's just worried because he's been observing Stalin, who is now, as I said, right, in his 45th year, maybe if Stalin's a sociopath, that's the reason going to motivate you to remove him. Zinovia does nothing of the sort. He concocts a cockamamie scheme to implant himself next to Stalin in the secretariat and sends a letter back up to Moscow and says, well, there's this letter from Lenin about the secretariat, and Stalin is like, what letter from Lenin, right? It doesn't understand that this dictation stuff calling for his removal, this is the first he's hearing about it, it looks like. And you think, oh, Zinoviev is not very clever, right? Doesn't perceive that Stalin's a sociopath, so it doesn't prove anything, it's just Zinoviev is a fool. However, there's a second guy in Moscow named Kamenev who has known Stalin since 1903. So it's now 20 years that he's known Stalin. And Kamenev is the one who has given Stalin the Russian translation of Machiavelli. He gave him that in 1904, which is still in Stalin's personal library, the 1869 Russian translation of Machiavelli. And so you think Kamenev is no fool, no naïve, right? Right? He's known this guy for 20 years, and he's given him the Machiavelli. And Kamenev writes back and basically says, you know, there's no problem here. We don't have to put anybody in the secretariat. Stalin's just doing the hard work. 
So Kamenev, who knows Stalin as well as anybody alive at this point, also doesn't perceive that Stalin is a sociopath. Because once again, if Stalin is a threat and a danger to these people, if he's behaving in a way that's scaring them, they have dictation, allegedly from Lenin, calling for Stalin's removal. They don't need anything else. That's you know straight out of Hollywood. If you're looking to remove a guy, the exact document you would need, and they don't act upon it. And so as you collect evidence like that about what people who worked very closely with Stalin thought of him at the time, you don't see sociopathic behavior, certainly not the kind that's going to unfold later on. So that kind of evidence of following what they're thinking about him in real time also, I think, is valuable for laying this out. But wherever that testament came from, whether Lenin, who was paralyzed and couldn't speak, dictated that document or not, whether it came from Lenin, it had a haunting effect on Stalin's life because everybody was whispering that there was a document from Lenin calling for Stalin's removal. And Stalin accumulated more and more power, but this whispering about the testament was eating him alive. The Trotskyites, when they lost at the party congress, circulated the document in typescript form in Moscow to all the people who had come from around the country to be delegates at the party congress. And the Trotskyites are the ones who put Lenin's testament on the top of the document, on the top of the typescript. And then they were called on the carpet and said, you know, Dzerzhinsky, the head of the secret police, brought the Trotskyites in and said, you're violating party discipline, you're violating uh, the directives here by circulating this illegal document. But everybody began to talk about it. And in fact, it was published as part of the party congress in 1927. And so here's a guy, Lenin's heir, Lenin's pupil, upholder of the Leninist tradition, and a document calling for his removal attributed to Lenin, circulating by whisper and sometimes in typescript form inside the regime. And it, it helps reinforce this paranoia, the paradox of Stalin's power. There's never enough power. He's always illegitimate. He's always a usurper. He's always under the gun. He's always somehow not good enough. He resigned six times between 1923 and December 1927. He says, you know, fine. You don't like what I'm doing? The hell with you. Let's uh, listen to Lenin's word. So this political struggle Building a dictatorship and building it in the circumstances of being haunted by the testament is part of the story of what gives you the character of Stalin that we know. A final point now before we go to questions, which you can see the microphones are in place. Final point now on uh, the foreign policy and the connection to the present day. So one of the things that surprised me the most in doing the research for this book, there were many surprises, there were many things I didn't know, many things I thought I knew that turned out to overturned by the research and the work of others. One of the things that's really interesting is the preoccupation, almost obsession, with the territories that were called the Limitrofa, which is a Russian translation of the Limes, Limes, the, the Latin word for the borderland areas. So as you know, the Russian Empire collapsed in World War I, Revolution and Civil War. New states emerged. Some of them were reconquered by the Soviet Red Army, and some weren't. So Poland, which had been in Russia, got out and was an independent state now, 
from 1918 and won a war against the Soviet Union in 1920 to maintain its independence. Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia on the Baltic also got out. Finland got out. Former pieces of the Russian Empire, now independent states. And the military counterintelligence files that Stalin was reading that you know, was some of the main documents he was paying attention to in the 1920s as he was building this personal dictatorship, those documents are about Poland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Finland, and how they're being used as platforms to undermine the Soviet Union. Kind of like Ukraine pointing at Russia today and Putin and other members of the Russian establishment today saying... The Ukrainian revolution has nothing to do with Ukraine. It's about the CIA. It's about the West. It's about them using Ukraine as a battering ram, as a dagger against Russia in order to destabilize the situation in Russia, do the same in, Ukraine, in Russia, what they're doing in Ukraine, bring down our regime, and maybe even dismember the country. And so we have to, to protect ourselves, to protect our security, to defend our interests, we have to proactively undermine these borderland countries and bring them back into the fold because otherwise they'll be used against us. So this is a very large component of Soviet foreign policy in the 1920s. And Stalin does, he tries a coup in Estonia in 1924, which as I said is an independent country, but he fears it's going to be used as a platform for a military base or an invasion force that'll come attack the Soviet Union to overthrow the Bolshevik dictatorship, the Bolshevik regime. So you see in the foreign policy, Stalin attempting to defend the Soviet version of Russian power in the world from the point of view of the borderland areas are the instruments against us. And so what to the West looks like aggression to the Russians, to the Soviet Union, to Stalin, looks like just defensive attempt to secure Soviet interests. So there are a lot of echoes, obviously not in the communist ideology. Obviously the Putin regime is not the Stalin regime. Very few regimes, as we were saying, in history can be compared to Stalin, right? You know, Hitler, Mao, it's a very short list. So we don't want to make an easy, cheap, simplistic analogy here, but we do want to indicate that the problem of managing Russian power in the world, and this is a book about Russian power in the world as well as Stalin's power in Russia, the problem of managing Russian power in the world has certain patterns, and those patterns involve no natural borders or the perception of lack of natural borders and the desire to exert control, to expand, to push out, to exert control for allegedly defensive reasons, for security reasons, which can look like, if you're on the receiving end, aggression. And as we get into volume two, Stalin is going to expand that western border again. He's going to incorporate Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia back into control of Moscow, the way it was controlled in the Russian Empire by St. Petersburg. He's going to try right, to bring others back into the fold. He's going to expand the border of Ukraine. The Ukraine that we have today, Stalin created it's a Stalin-era border. It's from the Hitler-Stalin pact. So we're going to see this dynamic, not exactly identical. Certainly the regimes are not comparable, 
But the problem of managing Russian power in the world, Russians' place in the world, Russia's relation to its neighbors, Russian security, has some eerie echoes from the Stalin book. Okay, maybe that's good if we are done now, and maybe I invite you guys to come up to the microphone for questions. I think I'm right at 10.30. Okay. So I think we'll start on the, my right, your left, and then we'll go to the microphone on this side. Yes, ma'am. Uh, the borderlands. Uh, the U.S. also has borderlands. It defends uh, through the Monroe Doctrine. Yes, ma'am. You would care to comment on that? Or not? Yes. So, you know, it's a very complicated question, the Russia-Ukraine situation today. And, you know, this, I can give a talk on Russia-Ukraine, and that, it's an important subject. I want to be careful here because I don't have the time to give you all the nuances, but uh, Boris Yeltsin in 1991, when he was helping destroy the Soviet Union on behalf of Russia to, to gain power away from Gorbachev and also because he thought it would be better for Russia to be outside the Soviet Union, in late 1991, Boris Yeltsin demanded from his Ukrainian counterpoint that they give Crimea back to Russia. This was Boris Yeltsin. But Boris Yeltsin had no such power. He was destroying the Soviet Union, and so he lacked the instruments to take Crimea back by force. But the fact that Boris Yeltsin, who's considered um, by many people over here a Democrat and certainly pro-Western, the fact that he was asking for Crimea, demanding it, Kravchuk, the head of Ukraine, flipped Yeltsin the bird and said, forget it, you're not getting it back. But it has been a long-standing already from the Soviet collapse, before the Soviet collapse was, was done, right? Before the Soviet Union ended, desire on their part to get it back. And so I think Crimea is going back to Ukraine around the same time that uh, Texas and Florida are going back to Mexico. <laughs> that doesn't mean I like that. That doesn't mean it's fair. That doesn't mean it's just. That doesn't mean Russia didn't violate international law. It just means that there's a power politics element here. Yes, sir. In, in 1936 to 39, during the Spanish Civil War, um, I believe Stalin eliminated about 75% of the officer corps in the military in preparation for World War II. Was he paranoid then? What was his motivation for doing that? Yes, so there's something called the Great Terror, also called the purges, which takes place between 1936 and 38. There are elements of it in 39, but it's really over by November 38 on a mass scale. And that's a core question of volume two. I have five very long chapters. One third of volume two takes up this question of what was going on with that great terror and the purges, especially the military. And so it's inexplicable in some ways, right? Uh, Hitler didn't kill his elites. He didn't murder the Nazi Gauleiter or provincial rulers. He didn't murder his officer corps. He didn't murder his secret police or Gestapo. He didn't murder his intelligence agents and diplomats abroad. Nor, I think, could he have, nor could he have murdered them and had them confess to crimes they didn't commit before they were executed. This is what happens under Stalin. So it is a really difficult thing to explain. Most dictatorships don't murder their loyal elites. In fact, 
they feather their nests. They go out of their way to make sure that their loyalty is maintained. When Hitler changes the officer corps at the highest level of the military in late 1938, he just retires them with full honors and appoints other people in their place, right? That's more typical. And Hitler was not exactly a vegetarian regime, although Hitler himself was a vegetarian. <laughs> so the short answer to what Stalin is up to is it's in his head somewhere and we may never figure it out. But he has a kind of theory of power or a theory of rule. He's reading um, Roman history. He's reading about Augustus. He's reading about how to be a tyrant. Stalin read his whole life. He was a, in many ways an autodidact. His library was very voluminous, literally. And he's reading Roman history. He had already been very familiar with Georgian history, his native land, and with Russian history. He's reading about how to be a tyrant. And one of the things he comes up with is holding the population in fear as a way of mobilizing them. And so he appears to be, although you know, he didn't have a diary saying, and now I'm murdering the officer corps for the following reasons. Right? He doesn't have, he didn't commit to paper, or uh, he, there was no mistress alongside of him who recorded his thoughts, the way it was with Mussolini. And so it looks like there's a crazy theory of rule about holding the country in fear as a way of making it more ready to both do great things and fight a war if necessary. Another part of that theory was promotion of young people and how you needed to have a whole new generation come up, and he speaks a lot about the promotion of young people. And then a lot of it appears to be a behavior that's explicable only by something strange in his own head. Because ultimately, he destabilized his own regime by doing this, and he knew that. He was getting reports about that in real time, and yet he still kept going and going and going. So it's impossible to get a, a definitive, satisfactory explanation for the Great Terror, uh, but there is a kind of a theory of rule here, and then there is a, a mind that has demons in it, and that combination gives you this episode. What's most interesting about the Terror is he decides one day to turn it off, and it just ends hmm. in November 1938. Thank you. And so it can't be explained as a dynamic that got out of control as forces that were beyond his control. So those are some of the old explanations. In fact, the day he decided he didn't need to do it anymore, he stopped doing it, and the whole country, the mass terror ended. But it's a tough problem. Yes, over here, thank you. Uh, when the, the Soviet Union had failed to spread its revolution to Western Europe and to China by the late 20s, as we know, Stalin developed the novel idea of socialism in a single country which was regarded by the Trotskyites as a complete departure from Bolshevism and from Leninism. But from your knowledge of the writings of the period, do you think that there's any support for the notion of socialism in a single country within Lenin's own work? Yes, yeah, so I'm not a Leninist or a Marxist, and I don't um, participate in those debates as, a, as an adherent. I'm an observer right. of those debates. And it's very interesting to read Stalin's original text on socialism in one country, not the Trotsky uh, annotated analysis of Stalin's text, but Stalin's original text. And Stalin's original text is just a recognition of reality. Socialism only existed in the Soviet Union at the time, with the exception of Mongolia. 
Mongolia had had a, a Soviet-inflected, Soviet-assisted revolution in 1921 and became the first Soviet satellite. It was a country of 700,000 livestock herders. But except for Mongolia, you only have socialism in one country. So Stalin wasn't calling for socialism in one country. He was saying, are we going to build socialism in the country that has this regime, or are we not going to do it? And the answer was, of course, they were going to do it, with the proviso that it would still be very good if other countries, as they expected, had revolutions too, and socialism spread. So that in many ways, the Trotskyite version of Stalin is a slander on Stalin's views. However, it is the view that we that has predominated because Trotsky was a great writer, a fantastically charismatic figure, and has done more than anybody else to define Stalin through the ages uh, as a mediocrity, as a betrayer of the revolution. It's complicated the Stalin policy in China, which blew up in his face. In 1920s, the Lenin legacy had two faces. Lenin, in the common turn, while he was still alive and active, said, uh, the, bourge- the proletariat is weak in the colonial world, and therefore, in the colonial world, we can't have an immediate proletariat revolution. We have to instead consolidate a national bourgeois revolution in order to defend the colonial world against the imperialists, kick the imperialists out, develop the countries, consolidate the nation. Then we can move later to the proletarian stage or the socialist stage of revolution. This was Lenin's line in the Comintern. A Bengali communist got up in the room. It was a room like this. And the Bengali communist said, but what if the proletariat is strong enough to have a revolution? Are you saying we can't do it then in the colonial world? And Lenin said, but it's not strong enough. And then Bengali says, but what if it is? And Lenin said, okay, if the proletariat is strong enough in the colonial world, you can move directly to the socialist or proletariat revolution there. But if it's not, we still have to build the bourgeois nationalist revolution first. So Leninism had the two faces coming out of the Comintern. And so Stalin's policy in China was a two-faced policy, literally. It was support for, in the 1920s, the Kuomintang, Chiang Kai-shek, the nationalist, the bourgeois revolution, and support for the Communist Party, the supposedly proletariat party, in what was called a block within. The block within. Meaning, they're going to have the bourgeois national revolution, and inside of that, the communists are going to get ready to seize the moment when it's available to be seized. Meaning, the communists are going to betray the bloc with the bourgeois nationalists in China once they're strong enough to do so. Chiang Kai-shek had a similar idea, but from the other side. He said, we're going to betray the bloc within from my side, and he began to massacre the communists, and it blew up in Stalin's face. But it was a Leninist policy to the core. Thank you very much. Yes. Um, I want you to know, and I'm reading a... uh, over 700-page book about Jefferson Davis by William Cullum Davis, and based on the quality of that book, I'm not deterred in reading your book. Uh, The question I have... (laughs) All right. (laughs) the The question I have for you is this. If Stalin had been born in the United States and grew up in the United States, would his leadership have risen 
to the level and quality of a Washington, a Lincoln, or, or a Harry Truman. Um, what is your thought on that? And after your response, I will give you the individual that I think he would be most like if he was in the United States. I kind of wouldn't mind having that individual now. Just because I got to be careful what I say here, I think. But you know, I mean, obviously, leaders are products of more than just uh, their own views and their own desires, their own intentions, right? And it's obviously very important when you have a rule of law system where there are limitations on the executive branch versus you have an executive branch run amok where there are no limitations and it's a dictatorship, right? And it draws a certain kind of person into politics and it produces a certain kind of personality once in politics. And so, yes, Stalin could not have been Stalin in the United States. It's just impossible to have done something like that fortunately, in this particular setting, right? Just as the same way as you don't get very many Lincolns or whoever it might be in the Soviet context either because of the difficulty of the circumstances producing a person like that. You know, history is about large impersonal forces, a structural landscape, which we didn't bring about, which we didn't choose, which is part of, like Alan said before, geography, mentalities, the culture, localities, right? And then on that landscape, inside that landscape, people then forge institutions, undo institutions, make decisions, fail to make decisions, right? That's how history works. It's the relationship between agency but the larger structural landscape in which these actors are playing, right? And they don't control those forces, although someone like Stalin can try to master those forces. And when you get a guy like Lincoln, it's somebody who's risen above those forces, and is trying to hold on to them and turn them in a different direction. And on a few chances in history you get, you don't get that many, you know, we can debate the Truman stuff, whether he's on a scale with Lincoln or not, but there are moments when this happens, and a great leader seizes that moment, and history turns. And it can be a turn, like in Lincoln's case, which is one of the greatest things that's ever happened, not just to this country, but in world history the triumph of the North and the Civil War, and the triumph of railroads, northern manufacturing, and freedom over a slave system, right? Which is going to have a big impact on the 20th century as a whole. If the South had won the Civil War, it would be a different 20th century. There wouldn't be the kind of American power we have. There are moments when that can happen, but Stalin's moment is to grab history and to enslave 100 million peasants in the collectivization of agriculture. So he's turning history, obviously, the opposite way from Lincoln, but that's rooted not just in Stalin's personal foibles. It's rooted in his ideas. You know, he's not reading the Federalist Papers. He's reading Marx. <laughs> he's reading Marx and Lenin. It's rooted in the ideas, and it's rooted in the complexities of Russian geography, of Russian institutions, of the history. So yeah, Stalin, fortunately, no Stalin-like figure in America, and unfortunately, no Lincoln-like figure in the Soviet case, and not because people have failed to try that, but because the circumstances are difficult to produce something like that. Thank you. I hope I would have given that answer. Um, my selection would be uh, J. Edgar Hoover uh, if he was in the United States. Yeah, I, I wonder if his father beat him. 
I got to think about that. I'm going to take one more, and I may go through the slides at some point, if that's okay. Yes, ma'am. Going back to um, Lenin's so-called testament and looking at it as a huge lost opportunity yes. for, for change, um, what do you think of the often um, written assumption that the reason Zinoviev and the others didn't follow through on it was because they really feared Trotsky more than Stalin and did not want to see him coming to power. Yes, there's something to the fact that they did gang up on Trotsky and were afraid of him because he was talented. But, you know, my point was not that they're stupid or that they miscalculated, but that it looks like Stalin was not a crazy monster yet. Because if he were a crazy monster, they certainly would have tried to prevent at all costs, even worried about Trotsky. If I were worried about Trotsky, if Stalin were the crazy monster that he's going to reveal himself to be, you know, I'm going to say, I don't like Trotsky, I'm worried about Trotsky, but I'll deal with this bigger problem first, then I'll deal with the Trotsky problem later. The problem with the fearing Trotsky story is that Trotsky is not that good behind the scenes at dictatorship stuff, and so their fear of Trotsky is not as great as we've made it out to be. The Trotskyites have made the fear of Trotsky into a bigger story than the actual sources permit at the time. One of the things about the losers in history is they rarely get to write it. But in Trotsky's case, they did. And so we have to be careful with the Trotsky face value stuff. Trotsky is a great figure, and he's a very prominent in the book. But uh, he's, and he's, he's skilled at many things, but he was easily beaten by Stalin. So we'll do, um, we'll go back to the top in a second, and I'll just run quickly through the slides. Uh, I think we're two slides away from the top. Um, we, what do we got here? We got 1048. We may even have time for questions still. This is the last slide, I think. Yeah, so this is Stalin, 1926 or 27, unretouched photograph. You can see the charisma. This, this is the Russo-Japanese War. 1905, the, the ships going down. Sergei Vita, who helped cause the war, but then negotiated the peace, the first ever prime minister of Russia. The opening of the Duma, the first ever parliament in the palace, Nicholas II. This is the guy who saved the Tsarist regime, the po top policeman in 1906. Unfortunately, he saved it. That's Nicholas II. That's Pyotr Stolypin. This is Kiev in 1911. He's the greatest Tsarist statesman. He's murdered just after that photo. This is his dacha, which was blown up. This is royalty that goes to war. That's Queen Victoria. That's Wilhelm II, Nicholas II. That's the hemophiliac Zaryevich. And you can see he's on the bicycle because he can't walk. If he bumps a tree, he bleeds to death. That's Stalin's father, Beso, Lomina, uh, Beso uh, Visarian, Beso. That's his mother, Keke Geladze. That's the hovel in which Stalin was born before Beria built a gigantic uh, mausoleum over it. That's uh, Stalin's benefactor, the richest man in, in Gori, his town, who paid for Stalin's education. That's the first ever photo of Stalin, center top. You can see the attitude. This is a close-up from that photo. He's probably 10, 12 years old. Stalin at the seminary, unshaven, uh, no, uh, no beard, second from the left on top. The neoclassical seminary in Tiflis, where Stalin was educated. That's Lado Ketsavelli, the Georgian Marxist who brought Stalin into Marxism and then was killed in his early 20s. The only job ever Stalin ever had, a legal job, the observatory in Tiflis. He was a weatherman. 
That's the prison cell after Stalin joined the underground, his first prison cell. His first wife, who died a horrible disease, that's Stalin in the corner. This is from the KGB archive in Georgia. That's the police archive photo of Stalin in Baku, 1910. This is the Archduke about to be shot. They're turning down the wrong street. And that's the guy who shot him, Gavrilo Princip. 80 pounds, tuberculosis. And he's the one who pulled the trigger on the war. That's where Stalin spent World War I. That's the Arctic Circle in the six weeks that there's no snow. That's Stalin with the top hat on. And that's Kamenev next to him in Siberian exile. This is Lavra Kornilov, the head of the army in Russia in 1917. And the right looked to him to save the situation. That's Kerensky, the guy who muffed the 1917 revolution. That's a guy you'll recognize. And you can see he was a serious person. This is the ballerina Kashenska. The Bolsheviks took over her mansion. This was Bolshevik headquarters. That's the outside of her mansion, across from the Winter Palace, where Lenin made speeches. This is the party, uh, the, the Congress of Soviets. That's Lenin behind the podium. The only picture of the seizure of power, 1917. That's Martov, the head of the Mensheviks. He had left the hall. This is the first Bolshevik government. That's Lenin, the bald guy in the middle. And that's Stalin with his hand over his face. This is Spiridonova, the terrorist who had Lenin uh, captured in July 1918 and let the whole thing go, could have overthrown the regime. Stalin's personal photo album, that's his wife, Nadia. That's Trotsky, the leather-jacketed war commissar and his entourage. This is Turkmenistan uh, when it was, uh, Turkestan when it was taken over, that's Kaganovich. This is the guy who seized Mongolia and helped accidentally convert it, crazy lunatic. This is Vrangel's being kicked out of Crimea, the end of the whites, the Reds win. This is the famine of 1921-23 in Tsaritsyn, which will be renamed Stalingrad. This is Stalin and Lenin, unpublished photo because Stalin looks Napoleon, a little bit too Napoleonic. That's the day that Krupskaya brought forward the alleged Lenin Testament dictation. That's Lenin at the time with his doctor and his nurse. You can see the shape he's in for dictation. That's the uh, Stalin... That's Stalin with the hat on the Lenin's funeral. That's Lenin's death mask, which, guess whose office that ended up in? That's uh, Stalin's book on Lenin. You can see the iconography of 1920s. This Stalin's office on Old Square, top floor on the right, former merchant emporium. That's the commissariat of foreign affairs, where foreign policy was done. This is the war commissariat, where Trotsky had his office. It's an old military school. That's the secret police building, the Cheka. It was an old insurance building in Moscow. This is Stalin's inner circle, his secretariat, the people who run his dictatorship. It looks like a commune in Berkeley. <laughs> this is Stalin's military men. That's Felix Dzerzhinsky, the head of the secret police in Sukhumi, Abkhazia. You can see he's tubercular. He looks almost dead. That's Dzerzhinsky in that cask. That's Unschlicht. Uh, you know, Kidza, oh, that's Menjinsky, the guy with the painted red fingernails who came to Trotsky and said, I got it. That's Yagoda, the number three guy who was the wheeler dealer, black marketeer that Stalin used to watch. That's Artuzov, the founder of counterintelligence that Stalin used to watch the previous guy. This is Yevdokimov. He brought Stalin the fabricated Shakti trial. Uh, this is Zinoviev on the left and a doll of a kulak and a nep man, as if Zinoviev is, is, is faking it. Stalin with Kirov, whom he used to replace Zinoviev in 1926. Mikhayan, Stalin and Orjernikidze, the three Caucasus musketeers. This is Stalin's apartment in the Kremlin. He lived in this building, the only 17th century 
Boyar residence that survives, that's Stalin's dacha. Zubalova belonged to an oil magnate before him. That's Stalin's son and his adopted son. That's Vasily and Artyom. Born in 1926, that's uh, 1921, that's Svetlana, born in 1926, and Nadia, Stalin's second wife. That's Yaakov, the son from Stalin's first wife, whom we saw deceased in a previous picture. That's the woman who ran Stalin's household, Karolina Thiel, and that's Svetlana's nanny. That's Josef Pivsutsky, the dictator of Poland in the 1920s and early 30s. That's Chiang Kai-shek, who betrayed Stalin rather than Stalin betraying him. That's the Red Army. On, on a parade, they had no tanks, no tank park. They're on bicycles. That's Stalin at a meeting. You can see how he stands out. He's got a very charismatic face. That's the military attaches of all the enemies of the Soviet Union lined up on a square, on Red Square. That's Stalin in Siberia when he announced the collectivization of agriculture in 1928. That's how he got there. The horse was named Marat from the French Revolution. These are the Shakti trial, fabricated interrogation. Uh, this is the verdict in 1928, alleging that there had been wrecking going on, but it was all fabric. That's a kulak with a black boot and a regular peasant. You see the kulak or the rich peasant standing over him. And that's Nikolai Bukharin's caricature of Stalin, 1928, smoking that pipe. So I think, I don't know if we're out of time, but... So good morning, everyone. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs. It's just grand having you all here. We thank you um, so much, Stephen Kotkin, for this fabulous talk. I, I'm going to ask him a last to make some last remarks. But before I do, I, I want to thank Alan Luxemburg, the president of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, for bringing us such wonderful speakers. Alan, let's give Alan a hand. To let you know that coming up, if you don't have our brochure, um, we have some more wonderful speakers uh, Foreign Policy Research Institute is bringing to us March 28th, uh, John Moore, um, great, another great speaker, and April 11th, um, Jeremy Black. So if you don't have the brochure, pick it up. How many members are with us this morning? Oh, we have a few who are not members this morning. So. Thank you, members. Your membership helps support these programs, and we invite those of you who are not yet members to become, pick up the brochure and our flyers. Um, there will be a book signing, just to remind you, after books can be picked up in our museum store. The signing is by Central Park West. So we do have a couple of minutes left. Okay. So I just want to see if you could leave the audience with some thoughts about... This most recent book, if there was some something in that book that just stood out to you that you discovered that you haven't told us yet today, if not, would you tell us what you'll come back to talk about okay. more about Stalin and Russia right. uh, for the next program? Okay. okay, I think I've probably said more than enough, and I think this audience has um, shown tremendous fortitude and stamina, for which I'm grateful. Uh, but I will say this, that when you get into the Communist Party archive, 
when you get into these secret archives, when you get behind the scenes, behind closed doors, and you're finally going to see what do they talk like when they're not in public. You know, if you remember, the, uh, there's, um, well, let's put it this way. You have all this communist propaganda. Class warfare, kulak, rich peasant, finance capital, imperialist war. And you have this tremendous vocabulary about a sort of communist version of how the world supposedly works. And so you get behind the scenes, and what do you see? They talk exactly the same way when they're among themselves in private as they do the propaganda in public. It turns out that they're communists. <laughs> you know, like sometimes you put up a front and then you get behind the scenes and you say, well, now we can relax. No more garbage about the proletariat. No more of this nonsense about imperialist war. Now we can just kick back and say what we really think. But instead, in the secret documents, they're arguing till they're blue in the face with the same terminology, the same way of thinking, the same outlook on the world. You know, because ideas matter. It matters a lot what the ideas are. You know, the American Revolution had ideas in it. And they were ideas that took a long time to be realized. Ideas about separation of powers and about freedom, about civil liberties, about limited government. Not everybody was a citizen. There were a lot of slaves. Women didn't have the right to vote, right? We understand all of these aspects of our history, but the original ideas were such that freedom was possible. But in the communist case, they're committed to social justice. Stalin is a successful student. He's one of the best kids in the class in elementary school. Teacher's pet, sings in the choir, wants to become a priest, gets into the seminary. Again, one of the best students in the seminary, top of his class for several years. High grades, teacher's pet. That teacher's pet means you snitch on the other students. <laughs> teacher's pet. He's, he's on a trajectory for success. And he gives it all up because the czarist regime is oppressive. It's a horrific regime. It's really oppressing the whole country. And he's going to fight. He's going to join the underground in the fight for social justice. He's going to risk everything. He never, except for that weatherman job, where he's taken and comes out of that observatory, takes the weather, writes it down, and goes back in. He then flees that job, fleeing arrest, secret police, because he's in the revolutionary underground agitating for revolution on behalf of social justice. He spends 17, 18 years in exile, prison, no money, no job, no profession, no nothing, fighting for social justice. Then he gets into power in this crazy way when the revolution is possible because the war has brought down the old order, collapsed the old order. He gets in there, he builds a dictatorship, not solely for his personal power, but because he wants to remake the world in a social justice fashion, using the Marxist-Leninist analysis. He's a true believer. He's not just a cynical, out-for-his-own-power person. The problem is, is the content of the ideas. And in history, as we see today in our country, ideas really matter. They matter a lot. And unfortunately, Stalin's solution for the problems of czarist injustice were worse than the injustices that czarism created. Anyway, maybe that's enough.